Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Evanston. This Sunday's sermon was given by Senior Pastor, Reverend Dr. Ray Hilton. If you'd like more information about First Presbyterian Church of Evanston, please visit firstpresevanston.org. Our scripture reading today is from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 4 through 13, which you will be able to find in the Old Testament section of your pew Bibles, beginning on page 716 or on the screen. Please join me in a prayer for illumination. God, our helper, show us your ways and teach us your paths. By your Holy Spirit, open our minds that we may be led in your truth and taught your will, that we may praise you by listening to your word and by obeying it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Jeremiah 2, verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, What wrong did your ancestors find in me that they went far from me? and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through where no one lives. I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things. But when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priests did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, once more I accuse you, says the Lord, and I accuse your children's children. Cross to the coasts of Cyprus and look, Send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has ever been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, and cracked cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If this is your first Sunday with us, I want you to know that for this latter half of the summer, we have been using passages from the lectionary readings, and we've been focusing primarily on the prophetic books. And... Uh, I often think about the prophets as the smelling salts of the Old Testament, that if you're reading them, there is so much bite in them that they have a way of jolting us out of our sleepiness and out of the uh, sort of the days that we might be in. Their words aren't always beautiful. Their words are harsh and they're cutting. And I remember two Sundays ago, in fact, it was August 14th, that we read through parts of Isaiah and we tacked on words from Jesus in John 14. And we were trying to, uh, we were trying to understand how to foster 
a fruitful life with God by abiding in Christ, who is divine. And we were working on that. Well, today's reading actually takes us in a completely different direction. And it shows us what happens. What happens when we drift from Christ instead of abiding and staying rooted in Christ? And so you'll see on the screen, we're going to try to answer that question. Why do we, God's people, why do we wander from God? Why does that happen? As a pastor, one of the joys that I have <clears throat> is uh, marrying couples. And since I've been here in 2009, I have done lots and lots of weddings right here on this spot. Before the couple gets to the, the wedding day, I often require of the couple that they complete at least four to five premarital sessions with me. And if they don't do it with me, I encourage them to do it with someone else. And during the pre-marriage sessions, I encourage the couple to shift their focus away from the wedding day. Because that is such a big thing looming on the calendar. And often, if you're not careful, that is the sum total of their energy. We're going to focus on the wedding day. And I tell them, put the wedding day aside. Let's look beyond the wedding day. What's your life going to be like after your wedding day? And one of the phenomena that I discuss with them during those sessions is a phenomena that happens to all of us, a phenomenon that happens to all of us. It's called marital drift. And I often remind them, when I talk to them about marital drift, that most relationships go through at least three cycles. Now, this is not a linear, an inevitability for all of us, but I've been around the block a long time as a pastor, and from my, even my own experience as a person who's married, and maybe you can identify with this, we go through at least three cycles. There is this feeling of euphoria or cloud nine, and often when I meet the couple, I want to see that. If I don't see that, I ask them, why are you getting married then? You don't seem excited about each other. They should be coming in walking on clouds. They, they should be projecting in our meetings this feeling of, no, we've never argued. No, we don't have any problems. No, everything is fine. The sun's always shining. It never rains. And you, you allow them to have that emotion. They're in love. They're excited. They feel invincible. But as we all know, the euphoric or the cloud nine stage, it's not sustainable. At some point, the couple then floats back to earth. And inevitably, they experience, for some, what's called disenchantment. B.B. King, the great blues singer, said, the thrill is gone, baby. <laughs> and if you're not careful, boredom, ennui begins to set in. And it's not because they don't love each other. It's just the reality. You can't stay in the clouds forever. And you're back on the ground, and life gets incredibly busy with work, Maybe children are, are in the works by then. Somebody's going back to school. They've got to figure out vacation and leisure and hobbies, and they're paying bills. And before long, the couple gets so centered on all the responsibilities, they lose sight of each other. They stop doing the little things that attracted them to each other, and they become what I call child-centered, work-centered paying bills centered, house centered, stuff centered. 
They stopped doing the little things they used to do when they first met. They stopped speaking to each other. Sometimes they really stop speaking to each other. And if they speak to each other, they don't speak to each other with any respect. And they no longer go out on a date. And if they do go out on a date, they're like this on their cell phone, waiting for the meal. And they eat in silence, get back in the car, go home. And yes, they still reside in the same space. Maybe they even sleep, and I say maybe. Maybe they sleep in the same bed, but the empathy and the desire and the excitement has flatlined. And in that stage, in that stage, the couple is often vulnerable. They are vulnerable, vulnerable to an affair, whether it's physical or emotional, vulnerable to thoughts of divorce, or they begin thinking that the grass is greener on the other side. Or, and I've heard this many times, I think we made a mistake. Why? B.B. King, the thrill is gone. And they begin to drift. But I often say to these couples that the crisis they find themselves in, it doesn't have to end like this. It doesn't have to end in disaster. In fact, this is an opportunity for you to go to the third stage. Go to that third stage. Go to that opportunity. Take hold of that opportunity for change, for self-reflection, for growth. So don't panic. Don't panic. And if they're willing, if God can help that couple to find it within themselves, to fight for their marriage and return to their first love, then you see healing and growth and maturity happening in that marriage. I sometimes say to them, well, you know what? I think you guys ought to see a therapist. Where you are today, you didn't get here overnight, so go see a therapist. I sometimes encourage them to prioritize the health of their relationship. I sometimes tell a couple, look, you guys were together before baby Jane and Mary Sue got here, so you still need to, in a selfish way, prioritize your marriage, because after the kids get to be teenagers, they don't want to hang around you anyway, and you're so focused on the kids, focus on your relationship. So even after they're gone, you still have something to build on. Those three stages. And you say, well, Pastor Ray, I thought this was a sermon about why do we wander from God? Well, we didn't read the first four verses of Jeremiah chapter 2 because it opens with an image of newlyweds. It opens with the, this image of a short-lived honeymoon. And I often believe that the relational dynamics that exist between two people are not dissimilar to the dynamics that, that exist between God and God's people. So look at these two verses. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim to the, in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. Watch these words now. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. In a land not sown. plea the words of a wounded lover, saying, how did we get here? I remember a time 
when you were passionate for me and I was passionate for you, what happened? And by the way, this language of God as husband and Israel as a bride, or God as groom and Israel as a bride, or Jesus as the groom and the church as a bride, that is a very rich motif that you will find in the Old Testament. Believe it or not, we're looking at one of them. Books like Hosea and in Isaiah, in Malachi, but you also find it in the, in the New Testament. Jesus often refers to, or Paul at least, refers to the church as Jesus' bride. Now, we didn't read all 37 verses of chapter 2. We read verses 4 through 13. But even if that's all we look at this morning, you will notice that it does give us some of the clear reasons as to why we as God's bride, we as God's people, we wander away from him. And I saw, I'm sure there are many ways to look at this, but I saw three possibilities as to why I wander from God. So let me start with me. Why I would wander away from God. I think one reason, I call it the greener grass myth or that God is not enough. And if you have your Bibles, and if you've been here long enough, when I say if you have your Bibles, that's code language to pick up your Bible, and look at the text that we just read. Uh, look at verses 4 and 5. Would you do that? Because it's really important. If you want to examine where you are today, and you want to understand how to continue in that relationship with God, and how not to wander away from God, I would, I would encourage you. It's going to be worth your while. Look at verses 4 and 5, and let's just hear this, this, this reading. Hear the word of the Lord. This is Jeremiah chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. And then the Lord asks this question. What wrong did your ancestors find in me? And watch this phrase now, that they went far. In other words, they became distant. They wandered away. They drifted from me. What wrong, what evil, what wickedness, sometimes that Hebrew word might imply. What wicked thing did I do while you have wandered away from me and went after worthless things and became worthless themselves? And of course, this is a rhetorical question, and the answer is, did God do anything wrong? Did God have any faults? Did God do any wicked thing to Israel? The answer is no, not at all. There is no reason why they should be wandering. But there still is movement, but the movement isn't coming from God. The restlessness the wandering eyes, the looking at the greener grass, it didn't come from God. God didn't leave his people. They dumped God. God's people were the ones who walked away from the relationship. They used to love him. They used to walk with him. They used to follow him. They used to spend time with him. But as B.B. King says, the thrill is gone and Israel has wandered away from God. They looked at what the other nations were doing, the sexier gods, the more, the more impressive religious experiences, and they say, you know what, God does seem kind of boring. And I thought to myself, this is something for us to think about. If you ever are in a state in your life where you feel, man, I just feel so cut off from God. God, I, I just feel like you're not there with me. It's not that God has moved. What we've got to ask ourselves is, where am I? Have I moved? And so I think we drift and we wander from God. 
when we find comfort and significance in something or someone other than God. Again, look at verse 5. They, notice what the Lord says, they followed. Now remember, they used to follow God through the wilderness. They used to walk with God. What are they doing now? How did they end up here? They followed worthless idols, and they themselves became worthless. They became like what they worship. And friends, I can't impress upon you even more. You're not what you think. You're not what you read. You're what you worship. You're what you focus on. So they focused on, and, and the Hebrew word there is a word that we find repeatedly in the book of Ecclesiastes. They followed emptiness. The word could mean trivial. They, they, they focused on the things that were empty or vain or worthless or meaningless. Wind is what it says in the book of Ecclesiastes. And notice what happened to them. They became wind. They became trivial. They became worthless. They became shallow. So one reason why we wander from God, it's because we replace God. We focus on things that apparently gives us more meaning and purpose than Almighty God. But there's a second reason why, why we wander from God, and I'm calling this a lack of gratitude. And again, if you have your Bibles open, look at verses 6 and 7. Look at 6 and 7. They did not say... So think about this. They used to walk with God. They have drifted away, and even after they've drifted, they don't say to themselves, what's wrong? Something is missing. They don't say, where is the Lord? Where's the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that no one passes through, where no one lives? Where is the Lord? He's done so many amazing things for us, Notice what the Lord says, I brought you into a plentiful land to eat its fruits and its good things, but when you entered, and God did warn them about this, when you entered, you defiled my land and made the very gift, my heritage, an abomination. When I read this, it reminds me so much of the story that's in the book of Matthew where Jesus is going along and these 10 lepers are over there in the corner because they can't really come out into the open and they're shouting at Jesus to get his attention. Lord, we need your help. We're lepers. Help us, Jesus. And Jesus comes over and he heals all 10 of them. And he says to them, go show yourself to the priest. And one of them came back to Jesus to thank him. Jesus said, so I know I healed 10 of you, and you're the only one here. Where is the nine? Where are the, where are the other nine, your, friend, your nine friends? And no answer is given, of course, but it's, a, it's one of those pregnant moments in Scripture where you know that point that's being made here is when God has been good to you, when God has blessed you, as God blessed Israel, the response daily should be a response of gratitude. And I think this should be a reminder for all of us as children of God. 
And when you wake up in the morning, don't start with your list of complaints. When you wake up in the morning, if you wake up in the morning, first of all, just give thanks to God. When you get a chance to come to church, and not everybody has that chance to come to church. I have a person that I'm corresponding with in, a, in the Cook County Jail, and he wishes he could be in church. He used to sit in these pews, and he's realizing how much he took this opportunity, just took it as a, as a small thing. There are people right now who are horribly sick who wish they could sit in these pews. And the fact that you could wake up this morning, get in your car, or walk to church and sit in the pews, friends, your heart should be bubbling over with gratitude for God, even if that's all God did for you today. Because I'm saying to you, friends, where there is no gratitude, of course we're going to take things for granted. Where there is no gratitude, we're going to become a bunch of whiners. I'm telling you, I realize that's one of my aversions. I can't deal with whining. I can't. I can imagine how God feels when I'm always whining. We cannot be pleased. It's never good enough. No thanks, no contentment, no joy, because the world somehow isn't revolving the way it should revolve around you. When there's a lack of gratitude, there is no praise, there is no thanksgiving. And I want to urge you first prayers. I know these are tough times. I know it's hard to buy gas and buy food and pay rent and to pay for the kids getting to school and to buy school supplies. I know this is a hard time, but don't join the chorus of whiners. Find ways to give thanks to God day in and day out. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Amen? Remember to count your blessings. Name them. I'm telling you, if you had to write down a hundred things you're thankful for, you could do that within 10 minutes because so many good and simple things that God does for us, we just take it for granted. Where there is no gratitude, we become whiners and we begin to doubt the goodness God, and I'm telling you, the road to spiritual wandering, to spiritual drifting, drifting, it begins when we stop reveling, we stop adoring. There is no more any awe. There is no more any appreciation. So we say, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Well, here's a third reason why I think, just based on our little reading, why I end up wondering, and maybe you do too. And this is in verse 8. They had spiritually weak leaders. And I think this is interesting that here Jeremiah places the blame on these leaders, the people have a problem, no doubt. God's been saying that, but then all the, the leaders are part of the problem. Four categories of leaders, if you were listening to the reading, if you have your Bibles open, you can look at verse 8. Leaders who are spiritually anemic. First one, the Lord says, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? Same phrase. My people are not saying, where is the Lord? So imagine the priest is leading worship, having a good time, but doesn't ask, is God here? Is God on the move? 
They're not asking, where is the Lord? They're not seeking the Lord. And then those who handle the law, the scribes, the teachers of the law, they did not know me. They're teaching something they don't know. They're teaching something they haven't experienced. It's not real for them. And then the rulers, maybe the kings and the governors who have huge swaths of power over people's lives. And what are they doing? They're abusing people while they're fluffing their bed and padding their pockets and making themselves comfortable. They transgressed against me. And then the prophets, the prophets who are supposed to speak God's word instead of listening to God, what do they do? They go to a Canaanite god, Baal, and they prophesy in the name of Baal, and they went after things that do not profit. And friends, when I read these words, I take it as a word from God to me. I don't know about you. I'm in this business of being a pastor, a spiritual leader, the priests, the teachers, the rulers, the prophets. They were not part of the solution. And that's the last thing I would ever want to do to any church I'm a part of. I never, ever want to be part of the problem. I know invariably I become part of the problem. I want to be part of the solution. These leaders, friends, they were entrusted with enormous responsibility. And I know right now, and I'm not trying to scare anyone, but right now we have a nominating committee who are actively tapping some of you on the shoulders and asking you to consider being a spiritual leader here at our church as a deacon, as an elder, as a trustee. And I know some of you are saying no, and some of you are saying I'll think about it, and some of you are saying yes. But I would hope you would say yes. And the reason why spiritual leaders are so important, they help to set the direction and the tone of the congregation. That's the positive side of it. The negative side of it is that if you have spiritual leaders who don't know God, but they're leading, don't pray, don't read scripture, who aren't asking the question, God, what do you want? They're not seeking God. Then we are really in trouble. We're really in trouble if we have those kinds of leaders. But if you're being tapped on the shoulder, I want you to say yes. And I want you to join with other leaders here at this church who are seeking. And this is the wonderful thing about leadership. It's not just about leading the congregation, but it's about being led by God as we lead the people of God. So part of what happens, and I tell people this all the time, that if you decide to become a leader here at First Press, the first thing that we would love to see happen is that your heart gets opened up to God in a way that's never been opened up before. Because you're going to realize the enormity of the, of the responsibility. And you're going to humbly say, God, I can't do this without you. Help, help, help. And God loves that kind of vulnerability. God loves that kind of openness and that tenderness, and God will come and help. And so these leaders, though, they thought they had it together. They were no longer asking God's will and direction. They were no longer seeking the presence of God. And friends, it's not difficult then to build a bridge, as John Stott likes to say, from the world of the Bible to the world in which we live. It's really not hard to build that bridge this morning because the insights that Jeremiah has here for God's people are really true for the contemporary church, for First Press, for the church in America because we know of a fact, and I can tell you stories after stories after stories of pastors who care little for their flock, 
I saw the sad news. You know, that's the thing with social media these days. It's all over the news where a pastor was cursing his church. And I'm not making this up. The pastor's anniversary was coming up, and he told the church he wanted a Movado watch. I don't even know. I know it's a watch, but it must be pretty expensive. He wants a Movado watch, and the congregation didn't give it to him. And I heard a clip of that pastor's sermon, and I was embarrassed to be a pastor. He cursed the church because the church didn't buy him a watch. And I could give you story after stories of pastors who are there for themselves and care little about Jesus' bride. Preachers who stand up to preach and they will tell you everything that's going on in Washington. They will tell you everything that's going on in the world and they never get your eyes to look in the Word of God and ask the hard question. They're preaching but not preaching the Bible. It's happening in our seminaries, theological educators, and we have some theological educators right here among us but there are theological educators in this country, in some of our universities and seminaries, who when they're finished with a course, when they're finished with a year of teaching, instead of building up these malleable minds, they undermine their minds with their flights of fancy and confuse. It's happening. And so, as our leadership goes, so goes the church. And so I'm putting myself out there. We wonder why people are leaving the church, and I, can't, I, don't, I don't want to go into some of those stories, but just stories of people who say, I, 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 will never, I can never trust the church again because of how a pastor raped me, a pastor manipulated me, the leaders took our money and they're living in mansions while we're trying to struggle to pay rent. People lose faith because of leaders who lose their way. And in, when they lose their way, we lose our way. What did Jesus say? Strike the shepherd, the sheep is scattered. So verse eight does keep me up at night. And I'm not kidding when I tell you at the middle of verse 8, where it says, those who deal with the law did not know me. And I say, Lord, let your words speak to me before I speak to anyone about anything from the Bible. Make sure that my life is in order, because just having the title reverend doesn't make me a holy man or make a holy woman. So the question is then, what happens when people and leaders wander from God? And I want to quickly wrap this up by sharing with you two very painful results. The first one, and this may come as a surprise to you, is that God, God weeps. God is disappointed. And the only way I can understand it is if a man and a woman who are married one day finds out that the man or the woman has been seeing this other person on the side, and it became public knowledge. And how heartbroken, how angry, how disappointed the other person is, how jilted. And so when you read these verses, in verse 11 and onward, you are reading the words of God who feels jilted. God says, look, cross to the coasts of Cyprus 
And if you've ever looked at the map, Cyprus is a little island off in the Mediterranean, the Mediterranean Sea. God says, cross all the way into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea to the coast of Cyprus, or cross all the way over to Kedar, which is like this, this area that is on the edge of the desert. Go from east to west and examine with care, do your research, and see if there has ever been such a thing. Has there ever been such a thing? And what is that thing? Has there ever been a nation that changed its gods, even though there are no gods? But my people, leaders and people, have changed their glory. Their, 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 that, that word there means the, the weightiness, the majesty, the supremacy, the wonder, the beauty of God. They've changed the glory of God for something that does not profit. And then verse 12 says, be appalled. There's that outrage. Be appalled, O nations, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. Travel from east to west. And has a nation ever changed its God? And we change things all the while, right? When I had hair, I used to change my hairstyle. I did. I used to have an afro sometimes, and I'm just kind of stuck in one mode right now. <laughs> Some of us change shoes. We change diets. It's okay to do that, but to change your God. I mean, when I look at the pagans, the pagan nations in the Old Testament, they were so loyal to their gods wherever they went they would make sure to pack their gods with them and take them with them. Can you imagine the Canaanites saying, okay, Baal, we're done with you. Can you imagine the Canaanites looking at Asherah and saying, okay, we're done with you. That's not happening. Can you imagine the Babylonians saying, Baal, it was a good run, but we'll see you later. No, that's not happening. But God says, my people, though, Somehow, they've changed their glory for something that doesn't profit. Now, what this does, though, you hear the disappointment, the pain. But there's another pain, and it's in verse 13. And the Lord likens it to like leaving a spring of living water. My people have committed two evils. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, and they've dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. And imagine you're living in a desert where, you know, the water doesn't fall very often, it's always dry, and then you're wandering through the desert, can't find water, and then you happen to find a desert spring that just continues to bubble up with fresh, clean, clear water from the ground. And the question is, would you just walk away and leave that never-ending supply of water around? No, most of us would never leave that supply of water behind. And then imagine that, let's say you did walk away from that stream, and you say, you know what, that's great, but I'm going to go dig my own cistern. And the, 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 the ground, the, the landscape in Israel is filled with a lot of limestone, so I'm going to go dig my own cistern. And so you go out there and you're, you're digging your own cistern, and you're saying, so when it rains, my cistern will catch the water that I want. Forget about that bubbling spring. So you go out and you're digging and you're digging, but you dug a little bit too hard, and you cracked your cistern, your limestone cistern. And then the water comes, 
and the water collects and then it's leaking through. And somebody says, where's your water? Oh, it's cracked, but it's okay. It'll rain again next time. I did get a few scoops out before it drained out. Who would do that? Leaving a bubbling spring, building a cracked cistern, and then saying it's okay? We're harming ourselves. That's insane. The water of life. And that's who God is, the water of life. It's given to you. And you go off and do your thing, you're going to harm yourself. You're going to wander from God. It's like digging a trench near a chemical plant and then siphoning off some of that contaminated chemical water for your cooking and your bathing and your drinking. Nobody does that, but that's exactly what it feels like when we do our own thing and say, well, I'll just keep God on the side. So if you're here this morning and you are in this boat, you've drifted, you've wandered away from God, what do we do? How do we get back? How do we come home? And the question that I ask people all the time is, if you're looking to come back home, you got to ask yourself, what is the focus? What or who is the focus? Who's number one in my life? Because often that's the nub of the issue. It could be a man, it could be a woman, it could be a job, it could be an, an ambition, a dream, and you've made that the consuming, the pearl of great price in your life. And this is what's important to you. And even though you still kind of mill around the area with God, you're just sort of on the edges. He's not central to your life. And a life that is not centered on God, as we heard, it leads to emptiness. You're building your life on shaky ground. Tim Keller says it this way, building our lives on something besides God not only hurts us if we don't get the desires of our hearts, but also if we do. So the answer is then, is to come back to love. When I meet with couples who are struggling, the goal is to get them eventually to come back to loving each other, first love. And it's the same with God, come back to love. If there is something or someone in your life that is rivaling God, come back to the love of God. If you put the, the, the work to which God has called you as, a, as a, something on the edge of your life, come back to God. The only time you pick up the Bible is when Pastor Ray bug you and bug you to pick up the Bible. Come back to love. The only time you pray is when we're going to do the prayers with people right now, but the rest of the week, you know, you're just kind of winging it by your smarts. Come back to love. Come back to love. That's how idols get dethroned. And until you come back to God's love, the grace of God in your life is going to be blocked by the thing that enthralls you. So the way back is love. And I don't know if you're here this morning and you would like to come back home to God. This is an opportunity to do so. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess to you this morning that we are prone to wander. We all have wandered away in our relationships, but also in our relationship with you. And Lord, I pray for myself 
and I pray for the leaders of our church. I pray for our congregation. I pray for those who are watching that we would come back to the love of God. Heal us, O oh God. Help us to tear down every idol and come back to you. If you're here this morning and you'd like to be prayed for, and I, I've been thinking about this. Maybe I, I felt the Lord wants me to pray for somebody this morning who wants to come back to the centrality of God's love. If you would just lift your hand and let me say a prayer for you. Pastor Ray, I want to come back. I'm here, but I'm not here. I want to come back to the center of God's love. Anyone? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Father, I just thank you again for touching the hearts of your people, for wooing them, for drawing them, for loving them. Lord, you know the obstacles that stand in the way. And Lord, I pray that through community, through the fellowship of our church, we would be able to come back to the centrality of who you are, of your word, to prayer, to worship, to gratitude. Lord, we thank you that you're able to do more than we could ever ask or think through Jesus Christ our Lord. And God's people say, 